0: Volume 1. Chapter 7. Of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Willett, The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 1. Chapter 7. Having seen our friend properly installed in his new office, we turned our eyes towards Windsor. The nearness of this place to London was such as to take away the idea of painful separation when we quitted Raymond and Perdita. We took leave of them in the Protectoral Palace. It was pretty enough to see my sister enter, as it were, into the spirit of the drama, and endeavour to fill her station with becoming dignity her internal pride and humility of manner were now more than ever at war her timidity was not artificial but arose from that fear of not being properly appreciated that slight estimation of the neglect of the world which also characterized raymond but then pedita thought more constantly of others than he and part of her bashfulness arose from a wish to take from those around her A sense of inferiority, a feeling which never crossed her mind. From the circumstances of her birth and education, Idris would have been better fitted for the formulae of ceremony, but the very ease which accompanied such actions with her, arising from habit, rendered them tedious, while, with every drawback, Perdita evidently enjoyed her situation. She was too full of new ideas to feel much pain when we departed. She took an affectionate leave of us, and promised to visit us soon; but she did not regret the circumstances that caused our separation. The spirits of Raymond were unbounded; he did not know what to do with his new got power; his head was full of plans-he had as yet decided on none; but he promised himself, his friends, and the world, that the era of his protectorship should be signalized by some act of surpassing glory. Thus we talked of them, and moralized, as with diminished numbers we returned to Windsor Castle. We felt extreme delight at our escape from political turmoil, and sought our solitude with redoubled zest. We did not want for occupation— but my eager disposition was now turned to the field of intellectual exertion only, and hard study I found to be an excellent medicine to allay a fever of spirit with which in indolence I should doubtless have been assailed. Perdita had permitted us to take Clara back with us to Windsor, and she and my two lovely infants were perpetual sources of interest and amusement. The only circumstance that disturbed our peace was the health of Adrian. It evidently declined, without any symptom which could lead us to suspect his disease—unless, indeed, his brightened eyes, animated look, and flustering cheeks made us dread consumption. But he was without pain or fear. He betook himself to books with ardour, and reposed from study in the society he best loved—that of his sister and myself. Sometimes he went up to London to visit Raymond, and watch the progress of events. Clara often accompanied him in these excursions, partly that she might see her parents, partly because Adrian delighted in the prettle and intelligent looks of this lovely child. Meanwhile, all went on well in London. The new elections were finished, Parliament met, and Raymond was occupied in a thousand beneficial schemes canals aqueducts bridges stately buildings and various edifices for public utility were entered upon he was continuously surrounded by projectors and projects which were to render england one scene of fertility and magnificence the state of poverty was to be abolished men were to be transported from place to place almost with the same facility as the princes hussein ali and ahmed in the arabian nights the physical state of man would soon not yield to the beatitude of angels disease was to be banished labour lightened of its heaviest burden nor did this seem extravagant the arts of life and the discoveries of science had augmented in a ratio which left all calculation behind food sprung up so to say spontaneously machines existed to supply with facility every want of the population An evil direction still survived, and men were not happy, not because they could not, but because they would not rouse themselves to vanquish self-raised obstacles. Raymond was to inspire them with his beneficial will, and the mechanism of society, once systemized according to faultless rules, would never again swerve into disorder. For these hopes he abandoned his long-cherished ambition, being enregistered in the annals of nations as a successful warrior. Laying aside his sword, peace and its enduring glories became his aim. The title he coveted was that of the benefactor of his country. Among other works of art in which he was engaged, he had projected the erection of a national gallery for statues and pictures. He possessed many himself, which he designed to present to the Republic, and— As the edifice was to be the great ornament of his protectorship, he was very fastidious in his choice of the plan on which it would be built. Hundreds were brought to him and rejected. He sent even to Italy and Greece for drawings. But as the design was to be characterized by originality, as well as by perfect beauty, his endeavors were for a time without avail. At length a drawing came with an address where communications might be sent, and no artist's name affixed. The design was new and elegant, but faulty. So faulty, that although drawn with the hand and eye of taste, it was evidently the work of one who was not an architect. Raymond contemplated it with delight. The more he gazed, the more pleased he was, and yet the errors multiplied under inspection. He wrote to the address given, desiring to see the draftsman, that such alterations might be made, as should be suggested in a consultation between him and the original conceiver. A Greek came, a middle-aged man, with some intelligence of manner, but with so commonplace a physiognomy, that Raymond could scarcely believe that he was the designer. He acknowledged that he was not an architect, but the idea of the building had struck him, though he had sent it without the smallest hope of its being accepted. He was a man of few words. Raymond questioned him, but his reserved answers soon made him turn from the man to the drawing. He pointed out the errors and the alterations that he wished to be made. He offered the Greek a pencil that he might correct the sketch on the spot. This was refused by his visitor, who said that he perfectly understood and would work at it at home. At length, Raymond suffered him to depart. The next day he returned. The design had been redrawn, but many defects still remained, and several of the instructions given had been misunderstood. Come, said Raymond, I yielded to you yesterday, now comply with my request, take the pencil. The Greek took it, but he handled it in no artist like way. At length he said, I must confess to you, my lord, that I did not make this drawing. It is impossible for you to see the real designer. Your instructions must pass through me. Condescend, therefore, to have patience with my ignorance, and to explain your wishes to me. In time, I am certain that you will be satisfied. Raymond questioned vainly. The mysterious Greek would say no more. Would an architect be permitted to see the artist? This was also refused. Raymond repeated his instructions, and the visitor retired. Our friend resolved, however, not to be foiled in his wish. He suspected that unaccustomed poverty was the cause of the mystery, and that the artist was unwilling to be seen in the garb and abode of want. Raymond was only the more excited by this consideration to discover him, impelled by the interest he took in obscure talent. He therefore ordered a person skilled in such matters to follow the Greek next time he came, and observe the house in which he should enter. His emissary obeyed, and brought the desired intelligence. He had traced the man to one of the most penurious streets in the metropolis. Raymond did not wonder that, thus situated, the artist had shrunk from notice, but he did not for this alter his resolve. On the same evening, he went alone to the house named to him. Poverty, dirt, and squalid mystery characterized its appearance. Alas, thought Raymond, I have much to do before England becomes a paradise. He knocked. The door was opened by a string from above. The broken, wretched staircase was immediately before him, but no person appeared. He knocked again, vainly, and then impatient of further delay, he ascended the dark, creaking stairs. His main wish, more particularly now that he witnessed the abject dwelling of the artist, was to relieve one, possessed of talent, but depressed by want. He pictured to himself a youth, whose eyes sparkled with genius, whose person was attenuated by famine. He half feared to displease him, but he trusted that his generous kindness would be administered so delicately as not to excite repulse. What human heart is shut to kindness? And though poverty, in its excess, might render the sufferer unapt to submit to the supposed degradation of a benefit, the zeal of the benefactor must at least relax him into thankfulness. These thoughts encouraged Raymond, as he stood at the door of the highest room of the house. After trying vainly to enter the other apartments, he perceived, just within the threshold of this one, a pair of small Turkish slippers. The door was ajar, but all was silent within. It was probable that the inmate was absent, but secure that he had found the right person, our adventurous protector was tempted to enter, to leave a purse on the table, and silently depart. In pursuance of this idea, he pushed the door open gently, but the room was inhabited. Raymond had never visited the dwellings of want, and the scene that now presented itself struck him to the heart. The floor was sunk in many places, the walls ragged and bare, the ceiling weather-stained, a tattered bed stood in the corner, there were but two chairs in the room and a rough broken table, on which was a light and a tin candlestick, Yet in the midst of such drear and heart-sickening poverty, there was an air of order and cleanliness that surprised him. The thought was fleeting, for his attention was instantly drawn towards the inhabitant of this wretched abode. It was a female. She sat at the table. One small hand shaded her eyes from the candle. The other held a pencil. Her looks were fixed on a drawing before her. Which Raymond recognized as the design presented to him, her whole appearance awakened his deepest interest. Her dark hair was braided and twined in thick knots, like the headdress of a Grecian statue. Her garb was mean, but her attitude might have been selected as a model of grace. Raymond had a confused remembrance that he had seen such a form before. He walked across the room. She did not raise her eyes, merely asking, in Romaic, "'Who is there?' "'A friend,' replied Raymond, in the same dialect. She looked up, wondering, and he saw that it was Evadne Zaimi. Evadne, once the idol of Adrian's affections, and who, for the sake of her present visitor, had disdained the noble youth, and then neglected by him she loved, with crushed hopes and a stinging sense of misery.' had returned to her native Greece. What revelation of fortune could have brought her to England, and housed her thus? Raymond recognized her, and his manner changed from polite beneficence to the warmest protestations of kindness and sympathy. The sight of her in her present situation passed like an arrow into his soul. He sat by her, he took her hand, and said a thousand things, WHICH BREATHED THE DEEPEST SPIRIT OF COMPASSION AND AFFECTION. Evadne did not answer. Her large dark eyes were cast down. At length a tear glimmered on the lashes. Thus, she cried, Kindness can do what no want, no misery, ever affected. I weep. She shed indeed many tears her head sunk unconsciously on the shoulder of Raymond. He held her hand. He kissed her sunken, tear-stained cheek. He told her that her sufferings were now over. No one possessed the art of consoling like Raymond. He did not reason or declaim, but his look shone with sympathy. He brought pleasant images before the sufferer. His caresses excited no distrust, for they arose purely from the feeling which leads a mother to kiss her wounded child, a desire to demonstrate in every possible way the truth of his feelings, and the keenness of his wish to pour balm into the lacerated mind of the unfortunate. As Evadne regained her composure, his manner became even gay. He sported with the idea of her poverty Something told him that it was not its real evils that lay heavily at her heart, but the debasement and disgrace attendant on it. As he talked, he divested it of these, sometimes speaking of her fortitude with energetic praise. Then, alluding to her past state, he called her his princess in disguise. He made her warm offers of service. She was too much occupied by more engrossing thoughts— either to accept or reject them. At length he left her, making a promise to repeat his visit the next day. He returned home, full of mingled feelings, of pain excited by Evadne's wretchedness, and pleasure at the prospect of relieving it. Some motive for which he did not account, even to himself, prevented him from relating his adventure to Perdita. The next day he threw such disguise over his person as a cloak afforded, and revisited Evadne. As he went, he bought a basket of costly fruits, such as were natives of her own country, and, throwing over these various beautiful flowers, bore it himself to the miserable garret of his friend. Behold, cried he as he entered, what bird's food have I brought for my sparrow on the housetop? Evadne now related the tale of her misfortunes. Her father, though of high rank, had in the end dissipated his fortune, and even destroyed his reputation and influence through a course of dissolute indulgence. His health was impaired beyond hope of cure, and it became his earnest wish, before he died, to preserve his daughter from the poverty which would be the portion of her orphan state. He therefore accepted for her, and persuaded her to accede to a proposal of marriage, from a wealthy Greek merchant settled at Constantinople. She quitted her native Greece, her father died, by degrees she was cut off from all the companions and ties of her youth. The war, which about a year before the present time had broken out between Greece and Turkey, brought about many reverses of fortune. Her husband became bankrupt, and then, in a tumult and threatened massacre on the part of the Turks, they were obliged to fly at midnight, and reached, in an open boat, an English vessel under sail, which brought them immediately to this island. The few jewels they had saved supported them a while. The whole strength of Evadne's mind was exerted to support the failing spirits of her husband. Loss of property— "'hopelessness as to his future prospects, "'the inoccupation to which poverty condemned him, "'combined to reduce him to a state bordering on insanity. Five months after their arrival in England, "'he committed suicide. "'You will ask me,' continued Evadne, "'what I have done since, "'why I have not applied for succour to the rich Greeks resident here, "'why I have not returned to my native country.' My answer to these questions must needs appear to you unsatisfactory. Yet they have sufficed to lead me on, day after day, enduring every wretchedness, rather than by such means to seek relief. Shall the daughter of the noble, though prodigal, Zaimi appear a beggar before her compeers or inferiors, superiors she had none? Shall I bow my head before them, and with servile gesture, sell my nobility for life. Had I a child, or any tie to bind me to existence, I might descend to this; but, as it is, the world has been to me a harsh stepmother. Fain would I leave the abode she seems to grudge, and in the grave forget my pride, my struggles, my despair. The time will soon come. Grief and famine have already sapped the foundations of my being. A very short time, and I shall have passed away, unstained by the crime of self-destruction, unstung by the memory of degradation, my spirit will throw aside the miserable coil, and find such recompense as fortitude and resignation may deserve. This may seem madness to you, yet you also have pride and resolution. Do not then wonder that my pride is tameless, my resolution unalterable. Having thus finished her tale, and given such an account as she deemed fit, of the motives of her abstaining from all endeavour to obtain aid from her countrymen, Evadne paused. Yet she seemed to have more to say, to which she was unable to give words. In the meantime Raymond was eloquent. His desire of restoring his lovely friend to her rank in society, and to her lost prosperity, animated him, and he poured forth with energy, all his wishes and intentions on that subject. But he was checked. Evadne exacted a promise, that he should conceal from all her friends her existence in England. "'The relatives of the Earl of Windsor,' said she haughtily, "'doubtless think that I injured him. Perhaps the Earl himself would be the first to acquit me, but probably I do not deserve acquittal. I acted then, as I ever must, from impulse.' this abode of penury may at least prove the disinterestedness of my conduct. No matter, I do not wish to plead my cause before any of them, not even before your lordship, had you not first discovered me. The tenor of my actions will prove that I had rather die than be a mark for scorn. Behold the proud Evadne in her tatters, look on the beggar-princess. There is aspic venom in the thought." Promise me that my secret shall not be violated by you. Raymond promised, but then a new discussion ensued. Evadne required another engagement on his part, that he would not, without her concurrence, enter into any project for her benefit, nor himself offer relief. Do not degrade me in my own eyes, she said. Poverty has long been my nurse. Hard-visaged she is, but honest." If dishonor, or what I conceive to be dishonor, come near me, I am lost." Raymond adduced many arguments and fervent persuasions to overcome her feeling; but she remained unconvinced, and, agitated by the discussion, she wildly and passionately made a solemn vow, to fly and hide herself where he could never discover her, where famine would soon bring death to conclude her woes if he persisted in his to her disgracing offers. She could support herself, she said, and then she shewed him how. By executing various designs and paintings, she earned a pittance for her support. Raymond yielded for the present. He felt assured, after he had for a while humoured her self-will, that in the end friendship and reason would gain the day but the feelings that actuated Evadne were rooted in the depths of her being, and were such in their growth as he had no means of understanding. Evadne loved Raymond. He was the hero of her imagination, the image carved by love in the unchanged texture of her heart. Seven years ago, in her youthful prime, she had become attached to him. He had served her country against the Turks he had in her own land acquired that military glory to fight for their security. Yet when he returned thence, and first appeared in public life in England, her love did not purchase his, which then vacillated between Perdita and a crown. While he was yet undecided, she had quitted England. The news of his marriage reached her, and her hopes, poorly nurtured blossoms, withered and fell, the glory of life was gone for her. The roseate halo of love, which had imbued every object with its own colour, faded. She was content to take life as it was, and to make the best of leaden-coloured reality. She married, and, carrying her restless energy of character with her into new scenes, she turned her thoughts to ambition, and aimed at the title and power of Princess of Wallachia while her patriotic feelings were soothed by the idea of the good she might do her country, when her husband should be chief of this principality. She lived to find ambition, as unreal a delusion as love. Her intrigues with Russia for the furtherance of her object, excited the jealousy of the port, and the animosity of the Greek government. She was considered a traitor by both, the ruin of her husband followed. They avoided death by a timely flight, and she fell from the height of her desires to penury in England. Much of this tale she concealed from Raymond, nor did she confess, that repulse and denial, as to a criminal convicted of the worst of crimes, that of bringing the scythe of foreign despotism to cut away the new springing liberties of her country would have followed her application to any among the Greeks. She knew that she was the cause of her husband's utter ruin, and she strung herself to bear the consequences. The reproaches which Agony extorted, or worse, cureless, uncomplaining depression, when his mind was sunk in a torpor, not the less painful because it was silent and moveless. She reproached herself with the crime of his death, guilt and its punishments appeared to surround her. In vain she endeavoured to allay remorse by the memory of her real integrity, the rest of the world, and she among them, judged of her actions by their consequences. She prayed for her husband's soul. She conjured the Supreme to place on her head the crime of his self-destruction. She vowed to live to expiate his fault. In the midst of such wretchedness as must soon have destroyed her, one thought only was a matter of consolation. She lived in the same country, breathed the same air as Raymond. His name as protector was the burthen of every tongue, his achievements, projects, and magnificence the argument of every story. Nothing is so precious to a woman's heart as the glory and excellence of him she loves. Thus, in every horror, Evadne reveled in his fame and prosperity. While her husband lived, this feeling was regarded by her as a crime, repressed, repented of. When he died, the tide of love resumed its ancient flow. It deluged her soul with its tumultuous waves, and she gave herself up a prey to its uncontrollable power. But never, oh never, should he see her in her degraded state never should he behold her fallen as she deemed from her pride of beauty the poverty-stricken inhabitant of a garret with a name which had become a reproach and a weight of guilt on her soul but though impenetrably veiled from him his public office permitted her to become acquainted with all his actions his daily course of life even his conversation She allowed herself one luxury—she saw the newspapers every day, and feasted on the praise and actions of the protector. Not that this indulgence was devoid of accompanying grief. Perdita's name was forever joined with his. Their conjugal felicity was celebrated even by the authentic testimony of facts. They were continually together. Nor could the unfortunate Evadne read the monosyllable that designated his name without, at the same time, being presented with the image of her, who was the faithful companion of all his labours and pleasures. They, their excellencies, met her eyes in each line, mingling an evil potion that poisoned her very blood. It was in the newspaper that she saw the advertisement for the design for a national gallery. Combining with taste her remembrance of the edifices which she had seen in the East, and by an effort of genius, enduing them with unity of design, she executed the plan which had been sent to the protector. She triumphed in the idea of bestowing, unknown and forgotten as she was, a benefit upon him she loved, and with enthusiastic pride looked forward to the accomplishment of a work of hers which, immortalized in stone, would go down to posterity stamped with the name of Raymond." She awaited with eagerness the return of her messenger from the palace. She listened insatiate to his account of each word, each look of the protector. She felt bliss in this communication with her beloved, although he knew not to whom he addressed his instructions. The drawing itself became ineffably dear to her. He had seen it and praised it. It was again retouched by her. Each stroke of her pencil was as a chord of thrilling music and brought to her the idea of a temple raised to celebrate the deepest and most unutterable emotions of her soul. These contemplations engaged her when the voice of Raymond first struck her ear- a voice once heard never to be forgotten. She mastered her gush of feelings and welcomed him with quiet gentleness. pride and tenderness now struggled and at length made a compromise together. She would see Raymond, since destiny had led him to her, and her constancy and devotion must merit his friendship. But her rights with regard to him, and her cherished independence, should not be injured by the idea of interest, or the intervention of the complicated feelings attendant on pecuniary obligation, and the relative situations of the benefactor and benefited. Her mind was of uncommon strength. She could subdue her sensible wants to her mental wishes, and suffer cold, hunger, and misery, rather than concede to fortune a contested point. Alas that in human nature such a pitch of mental discipline, and disdainful negligence of nature itself, should not have been allied to the extreme of moral excellence! But the resolution that permitted her to resist the pains of privation— sprung from this too great energy of her passions, and the concentrated self-will, of which this was a sign, was destined to destroy even the very idol, to preserve whose respect she submitted to this detail of wretchedness. Their intercourse continued. By degrees, Evadne related to her friend the whole of her story, the stain her name had received in Greece, the weight of sin which had accrued to her from the death of her husband. When Raymond offered to clear her reputation, and demonstrate to the world her real patriotism, she declared that it was only through her present sufferings that she hoped for any relief to the stings of conscience, that, in her state of mind, diseased as he might think it, the necessity of occupation was salutary medicine. She ended by extorting a promise that, for the space of one month, he would refrain from the discussion of her interests, engaging after that time to yield in part to his wishes. She could not disguise to herself that any change would separate her from him. Now she saw him each day. His connection with Adrian and Pidita was never mentioned. He was to her a meteor, a companionless star which at its appointed hour rose in her hemisphere, whose appearance brought felicity, and which, although it set, was never eclipsed. He came each day to her abode of penury, and his presence transformed it to a temple redolent with sweets, radiant with heaven's own light. He partook of her delirium. They built a wall between them and the world. Without... A thousand harpies raved, remorse, and misery, expecting the destined moment for their invasion. Within was the peace as of innocence, reckless blindness, deluding joy, hope, whose still anchor rested on placid but unconstant water. Thus, while Raymond had been wrapped in visions of power and fame, while he looked forward to entire dominion over the elements and the mind of man, the territory of his own heart escaped his notice, and from that unthought of source arose the mighty torrent that overwhelmed his will and carried to the oblivious sea fame, hope, and happiness. End of volume 1, chapter 7. Recording by Philippa Willets.